Hello and welcome to the Yenar podcast, the official podcast of the New Zealand Skeptics. Did that sound scripted, guys? Did that sound good? It sounded great. I was wondering if it was written by an AI. <laughs> it wasn't written at all. I'm trying to do a Craig here and just pull this off the top of my head. Um, but yes, welcome to the Yenar podcast. Today, I am joined by Bronwyn. Howdy. And Katrina, who's filling in for Craig. Thank you, Katrina. Kia and we have Daniel from the committee joining us tonight. Hi again. Now, Daniel, you're here, I think, both for an article that um, we published recently from you about mermaids and an article that we haven't published yet. Yes, indeed. Ooh, so it's a it's a two for one. So it might be that none of us speak during the podcast. This might just be an hour review. Is that OK? Oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> Love your confidence. <laughs> so how has everybody been for the last two weeks? <laughs> Awkward silence ensues. Uh, <laughs> I've been great. Uh, it was really interesting um, when we well, we'll talk about it with Dan, but it was really interesting to go see Brian Tamaki in person. Is it a highlight or a low light of our last two weeks that we went to see Brian Tamaki? Oh, I don't know. I mean, we still have prayers in Parliament to go to next week, Mark. We both oh, RSVP'd. Do. Yes. Yeah, I I am looking forward to that one. The last prayers at Parliament before the election. So it might be uh, a little bit interesting. It's always freaked me out a little, the idea that there are Christian prayers going on with a bunch of MPs in Parliament. Mm. It seems almost like the Christians have special access. I've certainly not heard of any other religious group that has this kind of access to Parliament. Yeah, and they kind of get pretty nice digs. I mean, when they had Jesus and Zed... They were kind of in the rotundra of the beehive yeah. last time we went. Yeah. So the prayers at Parliament group also use that sometimes, but they then also use that room upstairs in the wing, which I think is nicer. It's um, it's older. It feels more austere. You know, lots of wood paneling on the walls and stained glass windows. It feels like you're doing real work for the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> And speaking of doing real work for the Lord, um, I I have a brief update about Eastern Lightning. I, I wrote in my most recent newsletter that I feel like things are coming to a close. At the time, because I finally managed to get my hands on a book, I've been asking for months. And Daniel, you, you've been along on this journey with me. You've been asking for a book for months as well, haven't you? Yeah, had, had no luck. They keep ignoring my questions about the book. So who's the favorite child between the two of you? Oh God, me by by a country mile. Um, yeah, I'm I'm definitely yes. a little bit of a SWAT. I turn up to all the meetings. I I read every time. Whereas Daniel, we've talked about before, has issues with this because he's not actually Daniel when it comes to his Eastern Lightning persona. How is that voice changer going, Daniel? Does it still work? <laughs> I, in the end, I didn't do it, but um, I didn't think it was convincing enough. So I didn't no. want to. I didn't want to break. My character. It turns out that pretending to be an older lady is not just about voice changing. I think there's a whole bunch of other kind of voice affectations and things like your speed and, and other stuff that you really need to change. It's, it's a really hard one to do, I think. So, yeah. So um, given, given that Daniel can never really expose his real person because that's not who they think he is, and I just went in as me... Um, it's much easier for me to be the golden child. So I've turned up to a couple of in-person or face-to-face, as they call it, fellowships 
Um, and I've sat with a couple of guys and prayed and watched TikTok dances and music videos that are all spaced to make us feel really cool about the new church that we've joined. And the second time that I went, they had a pile of books in the middle of the table and it was just me and the host. And uh, when I was leaving at the end, I said, oh, do you mind if I grab a couple of these? I was racking my brain for what my reason could be. You know, is it I want a couple because I want one for work and one at home, or maybe I want one in the glove compartment of my car. You want one as a prize to give out at our conference in November <laughs> in Dunedin. Intent, nudge, nudge, buy your ticket soon. Oh, I'd have to get another too, one for that because I've already given one away to Dan and the other one is my memento of this thing. Uh, yeah, in the end, I figured that actually, like, like a lot of this stuff, the less you lie, the less you make stuff up, the easier. So I just said, can I have two of those books and left it at that? And the guy was like, yeah, of course you can. And uh, I walked away a happy man. But just last night, I got into a little bit of a spat with one of our group leaders. So the church is run by Chinese people, a lot of them who are no longer in China, maybe in Taiwan. Our current leader is in Guam, but they are constantly trying to promote new people into positions of leadership. They're trying to get locals. They're trying to get New Zealanders to help out with running our evening fellowships and one of these leaders, Jared, he, he's quite a complex character, I'd say. He seems like he's got a bit of a temper. I managed to wind him up the other day because he posted the morning devotional, the, um, the morning text that we were meant to read at like two o'clock in the morning. And I just made a little comment about, is it morning for you? Because it's still the middle of night for me or something like that. And that seemed to really wind him up. So he got a little bit snarky at me and I pushed things a little bit further and he got more snarky. And at that point, I told him, I forgive you, brother Jared. And uh, I was not quite prepared for what I was going to get back because the next message I got was, okay, mate. And then if you're going to mock me, just prepare for judgment, which was so ominous and so awesome. <laughs> I just, he's obviously very, he's only been a few months in this religion, but he's obviously so confident in it that he feels that he can bring the wrath of God down on me for mocking him. It, it feels like he's kind of, he's got to that arrogant point where he's very, very confident that he is aligned with God and that God will be protecting him. So yeah, so um, at that point I stopped messaging. I just left him to get wound up. And eventually one of our handlers stepped into the group and said, hi, brothers, let's try to calm down. We are siblings in Christ and may God quiet your guys' hearts. I think that was more aimed at him than it was at me, given that I was just apologizing. I was talking about how I was really sorry that I was slow. I was finding it hard to understand him. I think I did a good job. I think winding him up is a good thing. At, at least it makes me feel a little bit better. I don't know. But yeah, then we ended up getting a passage of Almighty God given to us, which started with, before everything you do, before your hot-bloodedness bursts forth, you must calm yourself. Call out God's name and think about whether what you are doing is in accordance with his will. And it just goes on and on. And It's got me thinking of um, Bill Bailey reading the little book of calm and... Um, Blake books and it's this tiny little book with these little calming statements in it and, and it doesn't it all it, goes wrong yeah, yeah it doesn't it doesn't work <laughs> yeah these just little calming statements which are dear no relevance and reality and they're somehow supposed to make everything fine just by saying them 
Yeah, so I, we've got, I think, our next fellowship tonight at 10 o'clock. But from what I can tell, it's not Brother Jared running them anymore. It looks like Brother Simon has suddenly stepped in. So I wonder whether I have pushed Brother Jared too much and he's now being demoted from his position. I I don't know, but I'm going to take it as a small win if I have done. Um, we'll We'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, keep us posted and try to get your hands on some more books. We need to get prizes out at this conference. All right. I, I'm sure everybody would love an Eastern Lightning book. So I will go back to an in-person fellowship again. and I'm going to grab a handful of books and walk out with them very <laughs> confidently like they belong to me. Well, I mean, you know, and also this will totally up your profile with Eastern Lightning because you can tell them that you're going to be uh, trying to proselytize to some skeptics. <sighs> yeah, well... See, normally with any church, if I took a bunch of Bibles or something and said I'm going to be handing them out, that would be fine. But the trouble with this church is they're a secretive church. And what they don't want us doing is preaching the secret word to anyone. They want to be able to control that. So what they try and get us to do is just give them the names of people that might be good for it. And they don't trust us to actually do the conversion. They're like, bring the people to us. And they've got the spreadsheets with the process where they slowly reveal all of these secrets that they have. So, yeah, we're specifically told, do not tell anybody these secrets. Do not let anybody else know what we're telling you, which feels wrong. I'm surprised more people don't walk away and go, no, there's there's something there's something odd going on here. If you're telling me I can't talk about it with anyone. So. I will keep you guys updated, but for now, let's move on to our first topic. And Katrina, you have been chosen randomly, well, not so randomly, um, to talk about your article on brain chips and Elon Musk. Does this mean we're going to get more podcast listeners because we're talking about Elon Musk? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so this is talking about um, a couple of weeks ago now, 26th of May, Elon Musk's brain chip firm. Neuralink announced that they had received FDA approval to launch their first in-human clinical study of a brain-implanted device. Now, um, coincidentally, two days prior, there's actually some Swiss researchers that um, successfully used a brain implant using pretty much the principles that um, Neuralink had got approved to get a 40-year-old Dutchman to uh, walk. He was paralysed in a cycling accident, so he couldn't walk at all. And they used a brain chip to get him walking again. There's a video online of him walking. He's doing pretty well, better than some elderly people. With He's got a walking frame on his head. He's got some of those big headphones, but sort of perched higher on his head. Um, and that's probably the only indication there's something going on there and a walking frame and he was walking naturally. And so they've actually beaten the email must by quite a bit. So he um, has got approval to start studying this and they're already doing it. But the hope is that they can use brain chips to help people with paralysed like that man, people who are blind, people who you know, have disabilities and having trouble using computers and technology and also for um, some neurodegenerative conditions such as Parkinson's and um, even mental illness. So some of those you already kind of use electrical signals in the brain and people manipulate them to do things. So it's thinking of how it can be used to help people. However, Musk's main aim is not that. He wants to prevent humans being displaced by artificial intelligence. And that's why he set up Neuralink and 
2017. And that is his ultimate aim of this is to get brain implants into people. And it gets pretty weird. So I'll be a bit more on that later. I started to dig to it and I couldn't. So just stepping back a bit to the the things that can actually be treated and kind of the legitimate uses, I remember reading an article, I think in New Scientist about 20 years ago about Italian researchers that were doing the same kind of thing for blindness. So they had um, some test subjects where it was a pair of glasses that had cameras embedded, and then it was a set of wires going into the brain and small electrical pulses. I think at the time the procedure was experimental enough that it was banned in the US, and there were people from the states that were flying to Italy to have this done. But even during the time the journalist was there at the facility in Italy and watching over this, I think one of the people having this done, they were learning how to use the device afterwards and ended up having, I think, a major epileptic fit. Um, I think because the technology was pretty new at the time, they weren't really getting it right. And apparently fits were quite a regular thing that was happening to people. So presumably the last 20 years of advances in technology have made quite a difference for this then. Yeah, it has. It, it is using a lot of technology that was already existing and connecting it up in different ways. But obviously that technology has got a lot better than it used to be. Um, also, there's a few things that they are worried about the safety about, and that's Elon Musk company in 2017. That's why it's taken so long for, for them to get FDA approval. They had a, a, some issue with animal testing at the start. And then um, more recently, they failed their first FDA approval um, due to some concerns around whether the wires that were in, uh, in there could move around inside your head. And um, there were some other concerns as well. So, you know, there, there's lots of things to worry about. But, but when we look at the Swiss work, which is what is very similar to what Elon Musk is proposing to develop, it's all existing things. So it uses electrodes in the brain to monitor basically the brain electric signals. They're called electrocorticographic signals. And they sense the motor cortex area of the brain. So that's the part that lights up when you move your body. And the implant itself is only about half a centimetre by half a centimetre, so it's really tiny. And it's got uh, an array uh, on it that picks up directional activities. So after it gets used to the way someone moves, it can see which um, movements correlate with the signals that it's um, picking up. And it's in a little titanium case, a little circular thing, and it's actually implanted in the skull so they drill a little hole in the skull and then pop that in there and then it's flush with your skull um so anyone with a cochlear implant or a baha implant for hearing similar thing they do they if it's okay talking about this you are actually someone with a cochlear implant right so you have personal experience of what this is like yes i had a hole drilled in my top of my skull um and a device put in the earth in a, you know, the magnet so it's flash so yes I'm technically legally a cyborg I mean that's awesome did you were you like excited right the way through this procedure were you like getting pictures and videos of it happening to you and and reading up on the technology and stuff probably the reverse I didn't want to know too much so I had some people trying to send me videos of the surgery happening going oh this is a pretty big deal before I actually had the surgery and I think for anything else I'd be okay but surgery on your head 
with drills in your skull. I, I just kind of went into, I'll just keep busy at work and then one day it'll happen and next thing you know, they're knocking me out. And I didn't really want to know the details until after the surgery um, right. because <laughs> it's not that cool. So, yeah, I know you, um, some of these different procedures can be interesting. This particular one was a little bit scary. So I just, you know, they take it portion of your skull they lift it off to get into the cochlear and then you sort of it's still gone and they put things in there it's just not a nice thing to think about (laughs) but now now it's in place and you've you've had it in for a while I mean most of the time you don't notice it it's just part of you now and it's not really a problem yeah yeah my hearing is pretty good now before it was pretty non-functional it got pretty bad so I was functionally deaf, I was lip reading in the end, but um, I still had that memory of speech and I still could hear some sounds, which is, means I was a good candidate for it. It's less successful where people haven't ever heard before, but they do use them quite a bit for children because they have the ability to learn to hear much better than adults do. And this, so, so a lot of this is neuroplasticity, and they, so you say they're reusing a lot of the hardware. And is it different parts of the brain then that they're putting it into, but kind of the same hardware being placed on other parts of the brain? Yeah. So, so with a, a cochlear implant, it's not really your brain. They're just putting electrodes into your cochlea to stimulate that. So they're just skipping the ear part. So the sound comes in, and then it goes straight into the cochlea, whereas normally it will go through your eardrum and do all sorts of things before it got there. So it's just skipping the right. entire part, which is a bit like this technology in that what it's doing is it's picking up the brain activity, measuring it, then it goes to an external processor, which calibrates it all, and then it's taking that and sending a Wi-Fi signal down to a device sitting on the spine called a um, pulse generator it's a active rc implantable pulse generator so that's actually already used for deep brain stimulation in parkinson's but this is for the spine and these these little paddles that go on it and they allow them to deliver the electrical signals to very specific parts of the spine so essentially it's replacing between the brain and the spine it's just replacing that connection which is not working with wi-fi and then the neuroplasticity works and you get better and the computer learns what works for you and you learn what the signals are supposed to do and try different things and then eventually you end up in a situation where it works so this is not a situation where you just plug it in and someone can walk it's going to take a while um, and it would be a lot of collaboration and a lot of customization via software to get someone to walk again but yeah so that, that's basically it um, it's all established tech that's out there but it's just connected up in this way and obviously a lot safer than it used to be the the spinal part did you did you look into that very much that's that feels like you know I, I get that drilling into the brain is dangerous but kind of drilling into the spine and I guess you're trying to attach to the spinal cord to stimulate it presumably that's a, a little bit dangerous as well yeah they're implantable pedals so they would need to operate and implant them um, and and then once the electrical signal gets there it does all the normal things the nerves stimulate the legs to move just like normal but I guess that you know with any surgery 
there's a bit of a risk. But I guess if you're already paralysed from the waist down, it may be that, that it really, the risk is not. Good point. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter. You already can't yeah. walk. So worst case scenario, you still can't walk. Um, and I guess with the spine, we know certain parts of it do different things. So it's just making sure it's focused on that one area. But as you say, with Elon Musk, he's got a very different idea, which is that he wants to make us kind of have an AI-type intelligence that can augment our brain so that AI doesn't replace us. We become the AI. We become augmented so that we're still the dominant intelligence on the planet, right? Yeah, that's right. So he absolutely thinks that artificial intelligence, if we just leave it, is going to take everything over. He's got a bit of a mixed view. So while he's saying artificial intelligence is bad, he's also actually trying to write something to compete with chat GBT. So he seems to be of the view that artificial intelligence is fine as long as nobody else has it. You're the I'm the only one who can trust, be trusted with this technology. And um, from what I understand, is, he he was one of the founders of OpenAI who make GPT. I, I don't know why he left, what the circumstances are, but he was there at the beginning of OpenAI. Maybe a little bit of sour grapes that he's not with the company anymore and they're doing so well. Yeah, I can't imagine why anyone would have a falling out with the guy. I'm sure he's... Um, <laughs> so he set up this company in 2017 and he got together with this guy called Tim Urban and he said, I'm going to explain what Neuralink is on the Wait But Why website run by Tim Urban. Now, all Tim Urban is, is he's an internet writer and a TED talker and he is famous for doing pretty bad um, line drawings to illustrate his articles and so he's written this really long page which explains Neuralink and it goes all the way through the evolution of human beings and animals <laughs> and then it goes through and it's talking about it's got a whole section on brains it doesn't even actually talk about cochlear implants it's actually got photos in there I didn't realize that when I first skimmed it and then it finally gets to evolution of humans or what he calls a human colossus which is now teaching the computer colossus to think in other words, people are creating super intelligent AI. And the theory is that the computer classes will either go bad or simply take over. So there's a bit of a quote which gives you an idea of where he's heading. So the human classes is not going to quit until the computer classes one day wakes up. This is happening. This is what keeps Elon up at night. He sees it as only a matter of time before superintelligent AI rises up on the planet. And when that happens, he believes that it's critical that we don't end up as part of everyone else. That's why in a future world made up of AI and everyone else, he thinks we have only one good option to be AI. <laughs> like I, I watched yesterday um, the latest... Elon Musk missive, he's given another presentation to shareholders about how Tesla's doing and how SpaceX is doing. And it feels like it's it's a lot of bluster. It's a lot of aspirational, inspirational stuff about, wouldn't it be amazing if we had 
20 billion of my robots helping us at home and helping us in the classroom and all this kind of thing. And I, I just can't imagine practically that we're going to end up at any time in the next 50 years with 20 billion robots on this planet, uh, especially Musk's robots. But he, but he says it with such confidence. And I think a lot of what Musk does is saying it for the shareholders' sake. You know, he's interested in the share price. He probably loves being the richest man in the world, which I believe he is again now, having dipped for a while. And I, I think quite a bit of what he does, I mean, he does good work, but at the same time, I think he is very much focused as well on his share price and on making sure that there's a stream of money coming in. And it feels like maybe Neuralink is another one of those projects, right? It's, it's going to get enough of the little Tesla fanboys to throw money at him that it'll keep him going for a while. Yeah, it's, it's headline first stuff, which is the exact opposite of the Swiss study, which was do the research, get the result, publish the result. And they got there first. So what they're doing works. He is starting to do that work. He seems to consistently kind of underestimate how long something will take, you know, the challenges behind it. So, yep, he wants a digital layer, like having your device in your head so you don't need to Use a phone, it's all there, you've got augmented reality, mem extra memory, search maps, you can control your smart home, you can have better audio, better muscle control, maybe control your Parkinson's and ep epilepsy, all the stuff you can do with electrodes now, monitor your health. So your brain is the computer and the digital layer piggybacks off it. Um, so it's using your brain to do all the grunty things that computers aren't very good at and it feels like part of you and I guess that's not that weird really it's not as weird as you might expect in that our brain already kind of operates that way so we our conscious thought is only part of what's going on in our brain there's a whole lot of unconscious stuff where we offload activities like breathing and um, autonomous stuff that we don't think about so it is possible to have this whole other part of you that is dealing with this sort of stuff and it not feeling too weird. But the challenge is the speed of communication. So for something to feel a part of you and feel natural, you don't want it to be laggy because then it will feel right. separate to you. So you don't want the speed of the processing in the brain chip to be far behind the speed that your brain operates. Yeah. So latency is an issue that people have already found. Obviously, we VR has been a thing in the last 10 years or so. And one of the issues they found with that is too much latency. If the delay between you moving and what you're seeing moving is too much, it, yeah, your brain just doesn't like it. It doesn't accord with the reality that it knows and, and it gets very unhappy. So I'd imagine even more so with a lot of the kind of direct brain nerve stuff that's going on, if the change doesn't happen quickly enough after you've thought about it, it's it, you're right, it's going to feel weird. Yeah, so you can't have symbiosis without good bandwidth. You need good bandwidth. Using a phone, you don't feel like the phone is part of you because you have to actually input things into it to get something out of it. So that's a real slow way of communication. Um, yep. Brain chip might be faster, but we don't have computers that really operate as fast as the brain. We don't understand why the brain can transmit signals at the speed it can transmit. That doesn't mean we can do calculations as fast as a computer, but in terms of the operational speed and all the things it's doing, we don't yet. You know, so it's got to get close to that. It's got to 
feel real enough. But if we can get the bandwidth, then we could do the great merge between the computer and brain, and that's Musk's, you know, ultimate counter to AI superintelligence. And then we'll have super people and all the problems that will bring. But there's a hilarious diagram in this, and it really cuts into that, what you were talking about, him sort of being maybe a little bit unrealistic about his expectations and when things can land. So it starts with a starting point, which is a circle, this diagram. And then there's a little arrow feeding into that just says fund this, you know, the magical funding will come from somewhere. So mega rich, so okay, I'll give him that. And then there'll be breakthroughs and bandwidth, and then that will lead to industry innovation. And then everybody will adopt it because that's what always happens. And that absolutely, there's a big equal sign. Once everyone adopts it, that will be widespread human AI integration that will equal reduced existential existential risk. Yes. And then a nice green circle, increased chance of a good future. I mean, that's it. That's the entire diagram you need. So many assumptions there. You know, we'll get it all funded. People will make breakthroughs. Everybody will love it. Everybody will do it. And we won't die. (laughs) This really reminds me of a possible upcoming article from me about a group that is well-meaning based in Auckland, but just, again, seems to be so kind of thinking about the future in that futurist kind of way that it's like, hey, we need to get to the best possible future, but the idea of how to get there and the idea that these people can manage it, it, it's just very unlikely to be the case. Um, and I think that's just how Musk does things. He he is imagining this amazing future that he's getting to. But I think the bit that is missing from this a lot of the time is human nature. I think, honestly, I I would consider that we're much more likely to be able to make an AI that makes good decisions for humans than we are to convince humans to make good decisions for humans. We've had thousands of years, millions of years of interacting with each other, and we generally treat each other pretty badly a lot of the time. Um, So the idea that, you know, we'd be the dominant species, we'd be the dominant intelligence forever, and this means it would all be fine, I'm not convinced that that would necessarily be the case. Yeah, I don't think people would like it, because the first thing it's going to tell you is, stop smoking, stop drinking, or whatever your vice is. It's gonna, <laughs> and you're going to be like, I've heard that before. I don't need an AI super intelligence to tell me that if I'm a smoker, I should oh, probably stop smoking. Imagine that. Imagine you go to pick up a pint of beer and the implant kicks in and pours it all over the floor. That that would be disappointing. It would be very disappointing. So, <laughs> Keep putting your the, cigarette out. <laughs> the, the, the crux of this is that human abilities are much more expensive than AI abilities. So an AI can only ever respond to the data that is available. And we don't need a steady flow of externally provided data. We can imagine, make up conspiracy theories, anticipate, feel, and judge changing um, situations, which means we can shift between short-term and long-term concerns. And if if we've got a situation that's ambiguous, we can... We can navigate that. So we're not going to be the auto car that's stuck at a roundabout and never moving because we can't work out, you know, whether we just go. Um, so um, that what humans have is authentic intelligence and artificial intelligence might be able to simulate authentic intelligence. Like 
on a chatbot, it could provide suitably sympathetic responses. Um, sometimes they even use it for, you know, counselling, those kind of things. But it's not the same as having a true understanding or experience. It's just simulating that. So the third type of AI is augmented intelligence, which is what Musk was driving at. But that's been around for quite some time. So you go back to the um, 1998, um, the chess masters, Kasparov and Veselin, I'm probably mispronouncing their names, um, but they, they used computers, they partnered with computers and had a match against each other in Spain, and it was a draw. And normally Kasparov won, he had better strategy, but the computer just wiped out any advantages he had. So um, as a result of this, he started offloading all the calculations to the computer and just focusing on the strategy, which is kind of what we do with our devices every day. I mean, when was the last time you actually remembered when your appointments were? It's all in your phone. Um, when was the last time you did long division? Can you do long division? I think, you know, we're all sort of cyborgs to a certain degree at the moment we're relying on technology and that's been going on for a while. I guess he's just underestimating the time and work and to get from sensory motor effects to get to complex thought and capturing that I think is a mm. bit different. So um, if someone has a body that moves and you're measuring the signals in the sensory motor or the thinking about moving, then that's easier to measure than complex sort. And we don't even know how to measure that. So to go from motor through to everything that's going on in your brain is an absolutely gigantic leap. And we are decades away from getting into that. So I, I, I think the one thing I'd say is for anybody that's thinking of investing in Neuralink, um, I would... I would look up one of Musk's other projects, the Boring Company and the Hyperloop, and just have a look at the difference between his promise and what he's delivered so far, because the the over-promising and under-delivering is, is something that he definitely does at times, and like almost unapologetically so. You know, he's he's definitely trying to deliver us to the future, get us our flying cars and everything, but he probably misses as often as he hits, I think. Yeah, he sort of puts his, he's, if, he's, if he's building a house, he'd be putting all the design images up on, on his Facebook page and going, hey, wow, look at the house I'm going to build instead of, you know, finished product once it had been done. He's sort of pre-bagging for it. And he gets a lot of headlines for it, but there are some other people out there just doing the stuff. But I have to ask, you know, if this is decades away or worse, Will it be in time to save us from the AI apocalypse? <laughs> Probably not. Like, if, if, if it's moving as fast as what he says, if we're in that much peril, but then it's going to take 20, 30 years. As I said, maybe it's mean? fine. Maybe AI will treat us better than we treat ourselves and it'll all be okay. <laughs> maybe. Um, I wouldn't recommend watching Black Mirror or anything like that. It might sort of shatter you. <laughs> no, that's, that's definitely a bunch of dystopian <laughs> ideas of the future. Awesome. Okay, so our next topic, Bromwin. You, I'm really bad at these segues. I feel like it's not happening today. The segues are not flowing. But um, you've written about Scientology and 
following on from that zap should we just talk about scientology tonight and maybe zap in a couple of weeks yeah that'd be pretty cool i mean they awesome. are kind of related to each other but yeah no there's still more things i need to write about zap before we can make any final conclusions but yeah let's start with scientology and this is kind of a topic that was inspired by you because it led on it started with you wanting me to write about zap but in order to talk about zap you need to talk about the early history of scientology in new zealand and david farrier has done quite a, has done a couple of articles both for traditional New Zealand press and for his own webworm about his experiences with Scientology. He had some very basic facts about how Scientology started in New Zealand. And it pretty much started around the same time as the Church of Scientology. But if you know anything about the history of Scientology in general, before the Church of Scientology was started in the early 50s, there was Dianetics. And that was, a you know, it was, it was meant to be an adjunct to psychology and psychiatry until a psychiatrist and psychologist told Hubbard that his stuff was bunk and he got really salty. Which, which it was, right? Beginning to end. So Dianetics is that there are engrams, these cellular level memories that are recorded in your cells whenever you go through trauma. And these get played back by your body when you're at risk and they end up doing things like making your eyesight worse and the whole idea that hubbard came out with the idea of being clear was that you were getting rid of these cellular memories and it's just science fiction nonsense i mean as science fiction as the the sci-fi books that he wrote it's just he pulled it out of his own butt and presented it as if this was fact but you know it really spoke to people and what I was able to find in terms of um, the papers past, which is this free archive that you can access in New Zealand of New Zealand papers, not all New Zealand papers, but um, the Christchurch Press is really a good one that has most of the articles up, at least until 1989. But yeah, very early on, they were there was Dianetics experts and there was a Dianetics clinic in Auckland offering treatments for migraine, asthma and psychosomatic illnesses. But yeah, so it was popular and they had these um, what was before it was called a church. It was called the Hubbard Association of Scientologists International. It went through multiple name changes as I guess Hubbard was realizing, oh, this is becoming popular, as well as wanting to take advantage of the tax benefits that come with being a church. So that's where, you know, sort of after 10 years of Dianetics in the early 50s, we start getting that, you know, the Thetans. We're getting, you know, Xenu is sort of starting to be developed in the background for the people who wanted to pay a lot of money to join. Yeah. But and so I guess that's where they started with the uh, the bridge to total freedom. Suddenly there's a whole bunch of steps where you need to pay at every single step to progress. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and as far as I understand, New Zealand was pretty early for adopting Scientology, right? Yeah, yeah. I think we're looking at, you know, about 50, you know, some like maybe around the early 50s, like 53, definitely. The person who sort of was the first person to be a Scientologist in New Zealand was Frank Turnbull. He ran one of these clinics for a while. He ran that what was called the Hazzy, the Hubbard Association of Scientologists. That was their local group at the time. Do you have any idea how he picked it up? Did he go to the States and go on a course? That was what Farrier said in one of his articles that Turnbull went to the States and got this extra training, met Hubbard overseas, and then brought it back and really kicked things off. Right. Um, I haven't been able to find within the documents I was looking at at the Alexander Turnbull Library within the National Library of New Zealand because they have a really sizable archive of all these previous issues of various Scientology journals that were in New Zealand from the early 50s through to the 60s and 70s. Haven't been really able to find that confirmation of how Turnbull got into it. 
And also there's not a lot of research or a lot of mention about Turnbull in general. And I think, again, that sort of um, boils down to, you know, this expectation that things that were online, you know, five, 10 years ago actually do stay online. They don't. Websites die. Servers go under, you know, yeah. so it's it's a hunt for dead links. Okay, so so Turnbull was Auckland-based. You said he was running from an Auckland clinic, but then at some point Scientology became big in Christchurch? Yes, yes. Um, but that's sort of going into a little bit around um, the Zap. So we may want to talk a little bit about the Christchurch stuff uh, a little bit later. Okay, so, so in the early days, a lot of it was in Auckland, um, yeah. and obviously it's back in Auckland now. Mm-hmm. But so, I mean, who... How well did they do? Who got involved and, and what were the goings on in the early days? Uh, you know, they're doing, you know, this is sort of the early days of Scientology. So they were offering tons of courses and books and there were screenings because, uh, you know, Hubbard would record his talks. And sometimes he yeah. would record, apparently record special talks for New Zealand. Now, I just wonder if he just had a set script and, you know, would record maybe five or six copies of the same script with just a little introduction for the New Zealand audience and for the Australia audience. And a large a large part of their library, as well as the books that Scientology sells, they they have a lot of audio content as well of L. Ron Hubbard. And I guess like a few of these other cult groups that you've been looking into, it, it must be quite amazing to be a member and to hear the founder or the main person's voice. I guess there's an authentic feel to that. And it's a great way to sort of keep things consistent. We saw that with Ann Davies and the builders of the Aditum. You know, she her big thing that sort of really spread it to New Zealand was this record that she did of the yep. Kabbalistic uh, of the Kabbalistic service. And one of the things that we don't have, and maybe at the same time it's not necessarily needed anymore, she put out several tapes and other senior freighters and sorors and builders of the Aditum put out tapes of services and of them doing readings. Um, all that stuff is now online. Okay. You know, they have they have an online radio station that does nothing but play all this stuff. um, Which is not going to be the Scientology way, right? Because Scientology is big on charging money for everything. Mm -hmm. But, you know, at the same time, back in the 60s and 70s, that's what you had to do. So they would have these tapes of him talking. Um, It was just the way it worked. And we even know that there's some lost media out there of films (sighs) that that Hubbard produced because Hubbard, you know, did have a bit of an interest in film filmmaking and he was he also was in a band or i shouldn't say he was in a band but there was a disco pop rock band that was associated with scientology in the 70s and their music is not bad one of the things that really interested me was just how early it seemed like new zealanders were already concerned about scientology didn't take long before it seemed like the the warning bells were going off and Mm -hmm. people were noticing red flags right yeah, I mean, um, throughout the, um, you know, throughout the 60s, it was definitely getting a big issue. But I think it all kicked off with this family called the O'Donnells, um, both their daughter and a younger son, not their youngest son, they had several kids, um, just sort of disappeared one day. And Scientology wouldn't really tell them what was going on. But turned out that the daughter was getting into Scientology. She was dating a boy who was a Scientologist. The boy and girl were going to get married. This girl and her boyfriend were going to get married. And on the day of the wedding, the parents withdrew permission. So the girl and her boyfriend, you know, despite a couple of attempts by her family to get her and her brother out of Auckland and away from this boyfriend, um, the girl and her boyfriend sort of went on this tiki tour of Europe and the U.S. trying to find a place to get married while working with Scientology. And then the brother sort of just hung out in Australia with other family members and also joined Scientology. But that really kicked off a complaint by their parents regarding 
Scientology, and that really kicked off a request for an inquiry. A petition was sent up to Parliament. It had about 700 signatures. And they rather than they didn't want to do royal commission, but they did do a commission of inquiry. And that's what we get the Dumbleton Powell's report in about six, 1968, 1969. And it's a bit of an it's a bit of a commission report without teeth. They had really great witnesses who were making complaints against Scientology, but the people who were representing Scientology, mostly represented by um, a baronet, um, Sir Hort and his wife, Lady Hort, you know, they were kind of new to Scientology, but they were kind of a big get in many ways because they, you know, this is a baronet from the UK. That's pretty prestigious to have in your organization. So they were given really prominent roles in New Zealand, despite having not been Scientologists for very long. And they didn't really represent the organization very well. They couldn't really answer questions about Scientology. And even before the commission, Lady Hort just started burning files. (laughs) (laughs) But it's okay. So this is a technique that obviously Hubbard worked out fairly early is get the celebrities because people look up to them and people will listen to them. And even in New Zealand, then they obviously managed to get some, I guess, famous people in this way in order to basically give them credibility and and help them out with this uh, inquiry. Yeah, they were kind of, they weren't quite in charge, but they were very much the public facing side of Scientology in New Zealand. But eventually, um, not long after the inquiry, they were recalled back to the UK and she ended up, you know, still doing some pretty, pretty prominent stuff for Scientology. Um, Lady Hort was a trustee of a private school in the UK called Greenfields, which is actually very well known as being the private school where people in Sea Org send their kids. And the Sea Org, for anybody that's not aware, is like the the hardcore mode of Scientology where you sign a billion-year contract. Mm-hmm. Um, so you promise that every time you're reincarnated, you go back and work for the Sea Org again until your billion years is up mm-hmm. because you're saving the planet. That's the big thing that Scientologists talk about is that they are saving the planet. It's that laudable goal again, you know, like Elon Musk. He's saving the planet. Scientology is saving the planet. Mm-hmm. Everybody seems to think that what they need to do is save the planet. It's It's weird. But as I said, you know, the commission that the inquiry into what they call the Hubbard Scientology Organization New Zealand was a bit toothless because at that point, Hubbard was sending letters saying, oh, no, we're not doing discontinuation anymore. Oh, no, we're not getting minor children anymore. Oh, no, we're not disconnecting anymore. So as far as the inquiry was concerned, these were our recommendations. They're kind of already doing it. You know, because they didn't, they they weren't looking into the legality of Scientology. They were looking at, you know, particularly three or four points about, you know, are you disconnecting children? Are you getting children who are underage? Are you ruining families? They claimed that they weren't doing any more. Therefore, case closed. Maybe we'll revisit if they are, if they do ever reintroduce these concepts. Well, we know what actually happens in Scientology. Um, You know, there's still this disconnection still being practiced. Um, there's still a lot of um, family division and separation. You know, it's, it's, a, just... it's a disappointing outcome, but it was one of several inquiries that were happening at the time. I think it was the second one because there was one in Australia before the Dumbleton Powell in um, Melbourne. Right. And then I think there was another Australian inquiry after that. And then there was one in the UK. 
I, I guess it was early days, so back then we could probably forgive them for taking Scientology on their word. By now, this has happened so many times where they either promise to clean up their act or they absolutely deny that they're doing anything wrong and, you know, they wheel people in front of the cameras to do this. That I think the whole world knows by now that you just don't believe a damn thing that Scientology says. Well, I think the big thing about it was, A, the disconnections, um, how the membership would send letters. I mean, that was one of the big things in New Zealand because they had their headquarters in Queen Street Arcade in Auckland. They had a testing center, employment center. They just really annoying the patrons of all these other businesses. Um, so once the recruitment sort of got going, all these followers were sending disconnecting letters to these businesses. So it was considered very annoying and upsetting for the business owners. Um, but as well, I mean, even in the early days, there were, you know, in the 60s, there were accusations that people were dying and committing suicide because of Scientology. Wow. Even in New okay. Zealand and mm. Australia. Yeah. But, you know, if we want to sort of step back a little bit going to Turnbull. Now, Turnbull was um, Frank Turnbull and his wife, Betty, were very much, you know, they were very senior leaders in the early Scientology New Zealand organization from the 50s through to at least about 1960, 1961. And then for some reason, right after Frank Turnbull was trying to get Ron Hubbard into New Zealand to do an in-person Congress, he disappears. He, he, you know, Frank Turnbull sort of disappears from any newsletters. Um, and the newsletters that I was reading and the journals I was reading start becoming a little less New Zealand focused and very much all about, okay, here's all this stuff that we're getting from the head office with maybe a couple little notices that we'll put in for the locals saying, oh yeah, come to our church. Um, so it loses a bit of personal, uh, you know, New Zealand flavor, um, having looked through all these newsletters. But one of the people that Turnbull had hired to work for Hazi was a young guy named David Mayo. And a lot of people don't know who David Mayo is, but he is probably next to David Miscavige, I would say one of the more influential figures in Scientology in terms of the impact he's had on the development of later Scientology and Dianetics. Yeah, this was surprising to me to read this this New Zealand connection so high up in Scientology back in the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, he was born in like uh, Tamaruni in uh, New Zealand in 1940. So in about 1957, 1958, he's in high school and he has this teacher who's introducing him to theosophy and Scientology, just apparently just gave him some books. He really likes Scientology. And then he start, He joins, he says he joined the organization in 1959 got a job. Um, and during that time, he was conversing or sort of talking to L. Ron Hubbard. And then L. Ron Hubbard kind of goes off the deep end a little bit because he gets very, very paranoid about the Turnbulls, both Frank and his wife, thinking that they were communists, thinking that they were trying to take power away from him. And this is really interesting because this is New Zealand. You know, how powerful was Frank was Frank was seen as being well liked. He was popular. Um, yeah, and then, but that that's a that's a known that's a paranoia threat. for Hubbard, right? Because he yeah. he panicked about his wife, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so um, you know, eventually, again, no documentation about, from this other than from David Mayo, but Frank Turnbull was uh, basically kicked out of the organization. It came across a website, and you know how it is when you're looking at you know Scientology, and what deaths are actually associated with Scientology. Well, there's a website that said that. Fred Turnbull was quite upset with how his wife was treated at a at the Scientology Center in the UK called St. Hill. And yeah, Hubbard just said sayonara. And when 
Turnbull got this message, he ended up having a heart attack. But instead of getting treatment for the heart attack, somebody went in and did a nine hour auditing session with them that caught that yeah that uh, this is a story it's an anecdote i don't know what the legitimacy of it is yeah Um, yeah did a nine-hour auditing session which seemed to help but then turnbull just had another catastrophic heart attack after that yeah scientology also has this way of treating injuries i'm not sure whether it goes as far as a heart attack but they get you to recreate the same thing so if you hit your hand with a hammer um, and you end up breaking a finger, the way to fix it is to lightly tap your finger with the hammer repeatedly. So God knows what they do for a heart attack. I don't know. It's like reverse homeopathy. <laughs> it, it's a really weird one. I've, I've tried it. I, I've done some online Scientology courses with Scientologists, and uh, I, I managed to get hold of a book at one point. So I have tried this out. It didn't work for me. <laughs> That's the thing that bugs me about alternative therapies and then what they're doing is seemingly harmless, but the problem is they're not getting the real treatment that they need, and that's mm. where the big harm is. Yeah. Um, but going, so sort of going further into, you know, David Mayo. So he sort of meets Hubbard now and then. He goes off and joins Sea Org pretty early on. Um, he works on the boats. He's also working at Flag Base. Um, he's building up his reputation and David Mayo, even after he died in the, you know, sort of the, what was it? 20 something, 2015, 2017, he died. People still have really good memories. He seemed to be a good Kiwi dude. He's your stereotypical nice guy. People liked him. People thought he actually believed in Scientology. Maybe not so much L. Ron Hubbard as we would find out later, but he certainly believed in the religion and the philosophy of Scientology and how, and, you know, the auditing process. So we got to fast forward to about 1978. Hubbard's had, you know, quite a few big health events. He was getting pretty reclusive due to the increased interest in, by the FBI and all of his legal troubles. He ends up having a pulmonary embolism while he was working on some film. So he is so unwell that his on-site medical staff are like, he's going to die in an ambulance if we move him. So Hubbard's like, I want Dave Mayo. So Mayo wow. is flown over from Florida and is told, don't tell anybody gets off the plane, they put him into a car, they put on some like these sunglasses that are actually painted, the lenses are painted over so he can't see where he's going. Uh, so Mayo shows up at Hubbard's place. Hubbard's like, you know, they, he's given all of Hubbard's files and has been asked like, you need to look at what happened because maybe Elrond wasn't audited properly. So that's a conclusion that Mayo, Dave Mayo makes and Hubbard's really like, yes, thank you for doing this. But that actually kind of makes Mayo skeptical. Not about Scientology, but about exactly, you know, about Hubbard, because Hubbard is seen as the founder of Scientology. All of Scientology comes from him. How could Hubbard let this happen? How could Hubbard let himself get so sick? How could Hubbard not know what went wrong with his auditing? But, you know, that's not Hubbard's concern. And Mayo's kind of given a very senior role. And they're put in charge of looking at, you know, building the new, you know, the next stages of the bridge. So, you know, OT, the operating feed in levels of five, six, and seven had a, you know, allegedly David Mayo had a big hand in that. Now there is some controversy around that, particularly from Marty Rathbun. Marty Rathbun is a, was, you know, a pretty high, if not the right or left-hand man to David Miscavige, certainly a prominent associate. He sort of figures very prominently in Leah Remini's anti-Scientology series as well. So Mayo's star just keeps on rising. People still like him. And in about 1982, Hubbard predicts that he's going to die in a few years. And yeah, actually, Hubbard does die in a couple of years. And he allegedly points Mayo as his successor. 
responsible for the technology of Scientology and Mayo's going to be in charge for the next 20 to 25 years while Hubbard's soul starts looking for a new body. But, you know, we also have David Miscavige in the background who is starting to make his own moves. David Miscavige is restructuring the entire organization and actually does a massive clear out of all these old school Scientologists who have been supportive and loyal to Hubbard since the 60s. Um, Miscavige was ruthless. I mean, mm-hmm. he was not in the running originally, but he, he played made it. He a political made, game. He, he manifested. <laughs> he manifested himself. And I, I think that's going to be really, that's a, it, there's this, I think for myself, when I think about what happened to David Mayo and then what we'll talk about in a couple of weeks regarding Zap and Dalhoff, I think Miscavige, you know, where, how old Miscavige was at this time and the position he had and the influence and, you know, the ear that he had of Hubbard, I think made a big difference in terms of how Mayo was treated versus say what Dalhoff was able to get away with because Dalhoff was never sued. I'm just going to give a spoiler warning, never sued. They just, you know, Scientology just let Dalhoff do what he wanted to do. Whereas once Miscavige is on the scene, you know, there's a lot of legal issues that come about, you know, a lot of people are getting sued in the Miscavige era, but anyway, so and this is the really scary part. And this is really, for me, what makes Scientology, you know, go into that cult realm. Mayo and about 17 other people are gathered up and they are detained by this church organization that has no legal, no legal authority to do any of this stuff. But yet Mayo and several others are, you know, they're removed from positions and they're detained um, first in Gilman Hot Springs and then they're moved to an Indian reservation called Happy Valley. They weren't prevented from leaving, but, you know, they are under, they're put under watch. But they are told that if you leave, you are going to be completely disconnected and excommunicated and you can never come back. You can never come back to a church. You can't come to any of your services. You can't get audited ever again. Mm-hmm. And for people who are dedicated to this, and it's been their entire lives for 20, 30 years, that's scary. That's a big change. <clears throat> uh, and this this mistreatment in the early days of Miscavige, you know, it, it's infamous. Just mm. the sadistic nature of the things that he did, like manual labor, digging holes and getting people to fight each other and stuff uh, like this. It was well, horrible. But what he did while Miss, well, um, David Mayo was detained is that he had them run around. Well, he had a bunch of them run around a tree. But because David Mayo was seen as particularly problematic, he was made to run around a pole separate to them. <laughs> But I love this. Again, I'm like, is this just, you know, Kiwis taking the piss because they only had one guard assigned to them. So David Mayo would stop running around his pole and just have a rest. And the guard would have to come over to the pole and try to get Mayo to start running again. And then the guys who the people who are running around the tree, they stopped running around the tree. And then the guard would have to go out. And so it was a lot of this back and forth people taking breaks. But otherwise, right. they were they were running around either the pole or the tree for several hours under the mm. hot sun. Um, I think Dave Mayo's, you know, whether it's because Scientology has pretty poor health care or, you know, it was the effects of running around for several hours. Um, he lost a lot of weight. His gums and teeth are apparently pretty messed up. But eventually Mayo just had a, had, a, had a guts full of it and did leave and was excommunicated. He decided I'm not having any more of this. But it wasn't long before he started what was probably one of the first independent um, Scientology organizations. And that was what we call the Advanceability Center. Um, and he was sort of doing similar Scientology auditing stuff for probably about a tenth of the price of what he was being paid by, um, you know, what he was being paid by Scientology. Like, you know, he was getting $1,000 yeah. an hour. Well, with this new center, Independent Center, they were letting people like pay by mowing the lawns. 
And you know. it, it's amazing how much this happens with Scientology, that people leave and they go, I'm done with Hubbard, I'm done with Miscavige, but I still believe in the tech. A lot of them come out yeah. still thinking that Hubbard's techniques are the most amazing thing in the world. And so you end up with a whole bunch of organizations that are still using the technology in air quotes that does nothing of use for you because I, I guess it's that the sunk cost fallacy right you know one the leaving you don't want to leave because you've already invested too much but also you don't want to admit that none of it works that none of it's real you still want to say face and say no I still believe in it I just don't like the politics of the organization and but I also think because David Mayo was so close to Hubbard and him being declared a suppressive person a, both because of Dave Mayo as, a, you know, was seen as generally a good, a good guy, a GC. I think uh, a good egg, as they a say good over egg, here. A good egg, yeah. <laughs> you know, that sort of, that shook a lot of people. And it shook a lot of people for a long time. You know, how could you, how, how do we explain why Hubbard didn't pick up this, suppress, this suppressive person? And so whatever David Mayo was feeling as an individual, well, now that was, that was meta. That was out, at, you know, that was kind of out in the open. People were having the same thoughts. And Scientology and Miscavige did have the scramble and try to explain that, oh, Hubbard is just such an OT that everyone else, you know, all the SPs, that SPness disappears when it's when they're in his presence, which is funny and not in a ha-ha way, but in a strange way. Uh, however, it makes Mayo vulnerable, and he is the subject of plenty of lawsuits because he does co copy quite a bit of the Scientology philosophy and doctrine into the Advanceability Center and eventually just kills his business and he has to give up. And that sort of hits off maybe over a decade of suits and countersuits until finally about 1995-96, it gets settled. And he eventually returns to New Zealand in 2002 and you know tries to live a post-scientology life in 2007 um what he he sort of went underground didn't really have much of an internet presence um, there's people who could have been you know could have been him online and on forums no one can really confirm but it seems that he did sort of have to put all the scientology and auditing stuff to bed yeah after that 1996 legal legal decision so can I put in a request? You're obviously you're writing about Zap now, which was my yeah. original request of yes. this is a fascinating, weird and wonderful group. Mm -hmm. But another thing I'm interested in is modern day Scientology in New Zealand. So um, I'm thinking Mike Ferris and yeah. their, their human rights nonsense over here and Nigel Anthony Gray might be a particularly interesting one. But do you, do you think there might be enough material out there that we can get another article about where Scientology is now? Maybe, maybe in a couple of months. I mean, I still have the, I still want to write about the Golden Dawn in New Zealand. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's going to be a big one. And that whole, you know, um, and about that whole Havelock, the Havelock work and, you know, the radiant living, all that stuff. You know, I kind of want to deal with Havelock and then maybe come back and, you know, gradually build up to something a little bit more contemporary. <laughs> awesome. All right. Wow. We, we've been talking for a long time already. So we just keep yeah. going and give people like a three hour extravaganza podcast episode. This is, <laughs> this is getting silly. Yeah, um, I know. This is what happens whenever Craig's not around to uh, steer the ship and just like, you know, start getting I, bored in the middle of us talking. 
I just let everybody gas bag for as long as they like. Yeah, I don't want to tell you to stop. This is all fascinating. So, Daniel, we, we're going to talk about mermaids. We see how quickly we can get mermaids done. Do you reckon you can make it the shortest podcast segment we've had so far? <laughs> what do you reckon? So my question to you is, yeah, sure, for The it. Little Mermaid, the new movie, yes, are people gaming the ratings online? Are the studios cheating and getting places like Rotten Tomatoes to basically fake the ratings? Uh Short answer, no, the studios are not cheating, but uh, it's definitely getting review bombed. But it these... seems like a lot of these review places you found out, they they have measures to handle the review bombing, right? They have like verified reviewers and things like that. Yes. So Rotten Tomatoes, they have a, a, a verified audience score, which you have to prove that you paid for a ticket. Oh, and, so it's only for some countries. So it is, I think maybe even only the US or um, North America, but it's definitely shows that there has been review bombing where 94% of the audience rating was for the movie compared that to 57% of the of the other um the whole audience. Of people in general. Yeah. Okay, so I, I think what you found in the end was that there was a real undercurrent of racism going on. So um, people don't like the color of the mermaid in the new movie and and they're very upset with it. Yeah. This is not really a movie that would normally interest me, but it was the, the divided opinions that got me reading the comments. And so I keep reading and interacting and Facebook keeps showing me more and more. And then it, just continue showing me some really awful pages and really awful comments. And there was definitely a lot of racist uh, memes and just, just, yeah, general awfulnesses. And so now Facebook thinks you're racist and is just going to continue feeding you racist nonsense for the rest of your life. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh dear. Well, there we go. Great podcast segment. I think that came in at under two minutes. Um, So (laughs) finally, um, you have written an article we haven't published yet um, about we uh, we all went out to go and see the newest political party. I think it's the newest one in New Zealand. Freedoms New Zealand. I believe they were so. they were giving a talk last Wednesday out in the hut. Um, they were at the Silverstream retreat. Um, the yeah, smelliest the... retreat. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, it just uh, smelled. Yeah. Like rot. Uh, it was like rotten garlic to me, and it was just so bad. The, the, um, the dump, the dumps around the corner, literally. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we got to listen to Brian Tamaki. We got to listen to his wife, um, Hannah. We got to listen to Sue Gray. Just yeah, there's all these terrible uh, speakers with all these horrible opinions. Um, uh, it seems there was a. a, a a core message that that they were all attacking trans people. I felt that um, that that just each every one of them just just had a terrible message against trans. And uh, Brian, he, uh, he he mentions puberty blockers. Uh, supposedly he he the warehouse was selling puberty blockers on the shelves. And I, think, was... I, th- I think our entire row all of a sudden took out our phones and were like, are they? What the heck is going on here? Where is this coming from? What puberty blockers could they possibly be was, selling? This doesn't make like, sense. Yeah, it made absolutely no sense. The warehouse does not sell 
prescription drugs i was uh, yeah i was absolutely confused of how he got to that conclusion we had a debrief in the pub afterwards and the closest somebody got it might have been you bronwyn was that it might have been the chemist warehouse that mm. sells this prescription and he might have got his brain confused between the chemist warehouse and the warehouse but i think i think there was an article that came out a couple of days later kelvin morgan on his twitter page apparently it seems like either a he was in the, he was in the audience or he may have been watching the live stream he was sort of making the same comments like where is this coming from and it all came out that i think he it might have been that tomic he was more mad that the warehouse was supporting pride in general I think that was the issue at hand. And that Yeah, so I I don't find that one believable. I know he said like there's a portion of proceeds from some of the things the warehouse is selling are going toward pride causes, but honestly it was a very specific claim. Puberty blockers sold by the warehouse. On the I shelves. can't imagine that yeah, Brian Yeah, it was a specific that was a specific and it clarified yeah, I, I don't get raising money for gay rights groups morphing in Brian's head to puberty blockers being sold. Yeah. Puberty blockers being sold at the chemist warehouse, being confused with the warehouse. I can definitely see Brian making that mistake every day of the week. But one of the things you can do, because they weren't taking questions directly from the audience, what they wanted you to do was um, use this QR code and submit your questions beforehand. And they would choose which questions, because they had this really nice way to do it, they would choose the nice questions, put it on a PowerPoint slide and project the PowerPoint slide up in front of the audience. Yeah. And I had asked two questions and they, one of them got accepted. One was the first one about, you know, what's your pandemic plan is going to be, is going to be. But the second question I asked was, OK, because they were putting this really big message of we're going to ban puberty blockers, but also talking about parental rights. Well, from a disability perspective, the very same puberty blockers that are prescribed for transgender children are also used elsewhere in healthcare, such as um, potentially preserving fertility for some uh, post-pubertal um, post and women who, uh, young girls who are going through puberty who are about to undergo cancer treatment. Right, okay. Uh, and so there are well, good reasons other than trans reasons, mm -hmm. other medical reasons why you might want to delay puberty. Yeah, um, and for, within a disability, for parents of, Disabled children, sometimes you have something, and it's a terrible name for it because it gets really confused. It's um, precocious, central precocious puberty. And this is something that can happen for a lot of disabled girls and, and sometimes boys, but mostly um, females who have um, disabilities. And it can be an issue because, you know, you are, you know, depending on the level of your disability, um, it can be very difficult to deal with the hormonal changes that comes with um, very, very early puberty. But I mean, it, it went as far as anti-gay, right? So I think Tamaki mentioned that he was going to ban Pride Month. I think I it was think. both. I think it was him and Hecky who were saying, you know, we are going to. It's okay. You, 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 yeah, it's basically love. Yeah, it was basically love the sinner, hate the sin. They need just need to be happy that we love them, but they don't need a Pride Month. But it was a question I had asked. I'm like, okay, so what about you know the yeah. puberty blockers for you know for parents who want who need want, who are requesting them for disabled children? The cowards didn't answer that question. <laughs> And it's Brian seemed to be quite anti-Mari, didn't he? As well, there was a there was a Mari elite Huge thing statements. about how they're taking all the money. And ugh. I think they're just trying to pick a common enemy that they can all disarm, and then they've got something to unite against. And they've picked that one because all the other stuff didn't quite work for them. All various parts of the people they're trying to unite, so they've they've yeah. picked. 
we'll it's not a lot to a night. community and we'll do that and that other and we we can all unite against that otherwise what's the cause and of I course it, it, I, I thought the it, anti-maori stuff was really interesting because he's like we're not out we're new zealand but he's specifically targeting maori elite i think he was targeting winston peters there you know he was making a, he was making a real attack for winston peters if if you listen to someone like Lee Williams or Carl Bromley down in Christchurch, you know, a couple of the real far right racist Christian types, they talk about Maori elites a lot. They they talk about how this country's going to the dogs because the Maori elites are taking all the money and through three waters and hey pua pua, they are going to own everything and we'll have nothing and we'll have to pay them to be able to use the rainwater and things like this. It it gets to the point where it's just an absolute mess. Um, and yeah, it seems like, unfortunately, Brian Tamaki is another one that's just going for this idea. I guess he thinks it's going to get him votes and that's all he's really interested in is getting more votes. It's a slippery slope thing again, isn't it? It's like, oh, well, you give them one thing and they all mean this and they all mean this. And then before you know it, we'll own nothing and they'll own everything yeah. and, or, you know, we'll, um, yeah, just have people identifying as kittens and um <laughs> Yeah, so Dan, what are your thoughts about the kit about blame? Uh, he was saying that, you know, what was it, Tomaki or Hecky? One Hecky. of them, because they all kind of it was Hecky who was saying, like, oh, the and there's this principle the you know, he was saying the principal was on stress leave because kids are pretending to be cats and need litter box in the hallway. Yeah. But this yeah. is a this is a pretty much a, you know, it's almost a trope at this point because I heard about it back in my home province in Newfoundland. It's, people that was making the it's news a myth cycle. that has yeah spread all around the world. And David Ferrier wrote a good article, I think quite recent, and he talks about how it had spread around the world. And he's kind of debunked it. There's there's just no evidence at all that any kid wants to be a cat that wants to have a litter box at their school. So this has popped up um, here again because there was a TikTok video where children told a story that their school had kids asking for litter boxes. And just, just even having a, a, a analyzing a basic look at the video, you, you clearly see it's a fake. You clearly see it's just a story that they've made up. It's just for a laugh. But he took it absolutely serious and yeah, shared it like it was fact. My my understanding of this story um, that I've heard from another skeptic, but I, I do need to verify this, is that the genesis of it is school shootings in the US. And the idea that when a school goes into lockdown for hours on end, some schools in the US have chosen to buy cat litter as an emergency measure, because if they've got young kids who need to go to the loo and they're locked inside a classroom, it's a hygienic way of dealing with that. And so some schools buying cat litter has now turned from a being a you know, a real bad consequence of a gun problem in the States to now the kids are all woke and wanting to be cats, which is kind of a total turnaround. The conservatives have turned it from something that makes them look bad to something that kind of works for their side of, oh my God, the world's going mad. Both my girls crawled around the floor meowing and stuff, but um, a mouse got into their bedroom and no, they are not cats. They were jumping up on the bed because it's the tiniest <laughs> mouse ever. And um, yeah, no, there's no future in which they are cats. 
It's just responsibilities to be in a cat. Yeah, there's an irony here that, you know, this is the Freedoms Party and they are talking about basically the freedom to not take vaccines, the freedom to not have mandates, but the freedoms for everybody else that doesn't agree with them. They're not interested in that. The freedom to take puberty blockers? Absolutely not. The freedom to to celebrate being proud, proud of being gay? Absolutely not. It's it's their own freedoms for their own beliefs only. And, you know, you had Hannah Tomaki, who was specifically representing the Vision Party, whereas Brian Tomaki is, rep- is going to be, he's the one who's going to go to Parliament, however. He's, you know, if that part, if their umbrella party, this Freedom Party gets selected, it's not Hannah. It's not Sue Gray. It's not what's his face, the other guy who was there. It's not going to be Hecky. It's going to be it's going to be Brian who's going to Parliament. And but it was Hannah who was saying, you know, you know, she's going to do something about the abortion laws, which is going to be. Mm. But you know, did nice. anybody else notice the de-emphasis of the fact that both Brian and Hannah run like a major evangelical church network? The um the slides introducing them that talked about why they were good people and worthy of being voted for, for both Hannah and Brian mentioned that they were co-founders of a large non-profit organization. And that is all they mentioned. No mention of Destiny Church or that it was a church at all. They're really trying to bury this detail that they've been taking people's money with the promise of prosperity. And they're now just calling it a non-profit. Mm. How, how could people not know who they are? Like, yeah, like... In this day and age, yeah, I think everybody's aware, right? It seems silly to try and hide it. Yeah, and, and I think also they were saying, oh, look, RSVP online. You need to RSVP online. I guess that was for catering. But when we were when we were coming into the room, you had to go through the tablet if you are sweeping online. And, you know, there's only maybe about 15 names I noticed on the yeah. tablet and everyone else was signing in. But when you look at everyone else, a lot of them were, you know, it was largely people who are decked out in the um, vision youth. They have a youth division now. So, yeah. And, and also man up. Man- and legacy and legacy is sort of the um, women's division, which I just found out recently through culty conversations. Um, a lot of them are part of Kang and Water. Oh, OK. Oh. So, yeah. So it did seem like given that there were a lot more people in the room than were in the RSVP list and we'd all been told to RSVP, most people that turned up had not RSVP because they seemed to know each other and they seemed to all come from the same church. Um, so yeah, it felt like the deck was stacked a little bit. I wonder what the central Wellington one was like, whether that meeting was similar. Mm -hmm. Um, and certainly it felt like Sue Gray might have been a little bit uneasy with the fact that she's basically talking to a bunch of Christians, um, who are there for Brian and not for her. I mean, she, you know, she's decided tentatively, she announced during this meeting that she's not signed on the dotted line yet, but she has uh, expressed, and it was an expression of interest, um, in joining this new umbrella party that pulls together a bunch of other political parties. But um, yeah, I can't, I can't help but think that she must be a little bit uneasy in her mind that she's playing with fire. Like she has her own group, the conspiracy theorists, but trying to pull in the religious right as well. That's a scary prospect. And I was a little bit cheesed off because my question, the question about puberty blockers and disability was on that list, unapproved um, or being moderated or reviewed for about a good 30 minutes. And then they sneak through this question that was only in for like two seconds about, hey, Sue, why haven't you signed up, you know, officially signed up for the party yet? And I'm like, oh, someone, someone on Vision or someone on Brian's side is getting a yeah. little bit cheeky there because it was very much a, it, it was very much a, you know, if not a Destiny Church, it definitely was the more of a Vision Party organization because their MC was a, 
was a pharmacist who could no longer practice or said he was mandated out of practice. And I think he was also part of the whole Vision Party Destiny Church organization. Oh. Now I feel like going back and looking through the video and, and that question that was asking Sue Gray why she hadn't joined the party yet. I want to see if Brian was tapping away on his phone 30 seconds before that was asked, because, uh, yeah, I, I could imagine it actually being him asking that question. Yeah. Yeah, that would be very interesting, because as I said, I was I, we were Dan and I were constantly refreshing, looking at the questions that we have a list mm. of all the questions that were asked. And there's a couple that weren't asked. But yeah, we were constantly refreshing this app that they were using and the question for Sue, that final question just showed up. Uh, but just to say something, um, I sort of have this habit of staying at retreats or, you know, you know, hotels like Hyden before they go crazy. Uh, and uh, when I first moved to New Zealand, Sam and I, my husband um, actually did say at Silverstream retreat, it was a place that, you know, we were paid, we were um, su subsidized to stay for a couple of nights before we could move into our, our, what was then our first flat in Wellington. Um, what I didn't realize until we showed up when, cause Dan and I went to the event together, um, is that there was actually an, a church on site. And I don't know if that's sort of a new development or not. Um, yeah. but I think it's good. I think it's an evangelical church life switch. I think it was called. That was just around the corner. Yeah. So what I've heard from, from work colleagues is that it is a popular wedding venue. Um, you're just, it's potluck whether the wind is going in the right direction or not on the day as to whether your wedding is going to stink or be fine. But this is more than just, this is not just a chapel. Like they are, you know, life switch is an active a, church, an active evangelical church. Okay. All right. So any last thoughts about this party or are we, we all going to vote for them or uh, maybe we're going to pick somebody else that deserves our vote. I, I'm just interested as to when it's going to decohere and is it going to be before or after the election because it's only a matter of time. I, I feel yeah. like there's sort of a should be TAB bets on it. Um, I think it will date. implode at some point. <laughs> I'm yeah. putting my bet on that. I, I think they'll hold until the election. I think they've left it late enough and like we saw Advance NZ break after the election. I, I think they'll keep it together. And then I imagine within a month or so afterwards, it'll all go wrong. I'm curious to see if the Tamaki involvement is absolute napalm. Uh, we were sort of, we were comparing speaking styles and it's like, eh, Brian, eh, Hannah. Hecker, eh, he was easy to listen to. I mean, you know, they could almost put him at front. I mean, you know, it's going to be interesting to see if they get that 5%, if they pass that post, what that would mean. Unlikely. I mean, I think it's now so far, uh, you know, so far now after Freedom Village that maybe, maybe, you know, definitely Destiny, anyone who would have voted for Destiny would have voted for Vision anyways. Um, but I don't know if they're necessarily going to get that anti-vax cohort. I'm I was, not sure. Yeah. I was wondering if Billy TK was part of this, but I, I saw that uh, Sue Gray had blocked him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sue and Billy do not get on. A lot of people and Billy do not get on well these days. I think Billy's burned a lot of his bridges. But yeah, he doesn't pull that much weight anymore. You know, he's now a, what is he, a preacher? And he's running his online sermons and stuff. He's kind of shifted a little bit. Still telling everybody that the UN is dangerous and is going to lock us all up in FEMA camps. But he's doing it under the guise of religion these days. Okay, so I think we are done. I think this is still going to be a bumper episode. So thank you guys for joining me. Now, quickly, Bronwyn, what do we have coming up in the next couple of weeks that well, people might want to attend? Well, if you are in Wellington this Friday, which would be June the 16th, we do have an in-person Skeptics in the Pub at 2 Gray Street 
inside the Intercontinental Hotel. And next Thursday, we have Skeptical Activism in the Falkland Brewer in Wellington. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, we don't know about Auckland skeptics in the pub, but go to the go to meetup.com if you're in Auckland and would like to meet like-minded skeptics. Search for, for Auckland skeptics in the pub and they will have it listed when their next event is. And wouldn't it also be next Friday, the skeptics in cyberspace as well? Oh, yes. And next week on Friday, if you are somewhere remote or you're just a little bit shy about coming to something in person, join um, our Zoom sessions, Skeptics in Cyberspace. They happen once every four weeks. They're pretty chilled out and you can just connect, leave your camera off if you want and just listen passively and then just jump in and join the conversation whenever you feel like it. It's really good to be able to chat about everything that's been going on in New Zealand and in more globally and have a skeptical view of things and hear what others think. It's a great little meeting. Um, At this point, there is no scheduled Dunedin Skeptics in the Pub for July. However, if that changes, you'll hear in the next podcast episode. And then I guess it's really all steam ahead for November. Mark, do you want to give a bit of a plug for conference? It's uh, the last weekend of November in Dunedin. That's all I can give you so far. The website will be up soon to buy tickets. Uh, I think we have Susan Gerbic signed up um, and possibly Mark Edward will be doing something as well um, and other international guests. So it's it's going pretty well so far. Um, but yeah, the, the guys down in Dunedin are actively working on the speakers for the weekend and it looks like it's, it's going to be a good one. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. So thank you for joining us. We will be back in two weeks for our next episode. Um, but in the meantime, if you want to give us feedback, please email podcast at skeptics.nz. And uh, we'd love to hear from you if you've got an article you want to write, something you want to come and chat to us about, or just feedback about how awful our podcast is. We All feedback is appreciated and welcomed. But until two weeks' time, we're going to have to go, unless we see you at Skeptics in Cyberspace next week, which we'd mm-hmm. love to come along. So it's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from you guys. Say goodbye, everybody. Adios. Catch you later.